Well, this evening we are gathered, as mentioned, to remember and, yes, to celebrate Good Friday. For it was on this Friday, or on a Friday, some 2,000 years ago, in which our Lord and Savior was crucified on a wooden cross. So we're going to remember Good Friday this evening by doing two things. We're going to open up God's Word. We're going to read the crucifixion narrative. And then we're going to conclude our service this evening by receiving the Lord's Supper or communion. Why? That we might remember just why Good Friday is so very good. And that is our intent this evening, to do just that. Why is it so good? Well, the answer is found. If you turn into your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. Don't have any slides for us this evening, so just follow along. And please open up your Bibles if you have one. John chapter 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 17 of John 19. Now, I'm going to read the narrative here, but we're really, as I read, we're really driving to the climactic and concluding verse 30. That will be the text this morning. We'll be centered on, but I want to start back at verse 17 of John 19 so you can hear the narrative and the context for our teaching. So, John 19, verse 17 through 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Or I might add, in Latin, it's called Calvary, from where we get the cross of Calvary. Verse 18, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. By the way, this is a public notice, the charge of his crime. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This is important to each and every gospel author. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come here this evening. It's a different venue. It's not a Sunday, it's a Friday. It's not a morning, it's an evening. It's not an auditorium, it's a cafeteria. But Lord, it doesn't matter to you. For where your people are gathered, there you are. Whether it be under a tree, crowded in an apartment or home, or in the majestic cathedral, or even in a cafeteria. Oh Lord, it doesn't matter. Would you bless us this evening? But Lord, I do realize it matters to some of us. It's a new environment. So Lord, I ask this evening that you would focus our attention and gaze upon you. That we would know you. That you, like a parent to a child, would look into our eyes, so to speak. And we would behold your grace this evening. Once again. And perhaps for some here, for the very first time that we would know just how good Good Friday is for us, your children, your people, we pray. Amen. It is finished. Three words in English, in the original. Greek, one word. Tetelestai. One word, three words in English. Oh, how important those words are. It is finished. Those are words, well, that few of us here could utter in any definitive sense. I mean, we live in a world, don't we, in which, well, most of that which we put our hands to is never, ever completed, at least perfectly. Much of what we start just left undone, isn't it? We Long for closure. Do you, do you long for closure? I long for closure in so many things. And yet, I seldom ever get it. You walk in my office, notice a couple of things. One thing you'll notice, there's a lot of books. I love starting books. Finishing books, that is a whole different story. All right? I once received a book entitled, How to Think like Leonardo da Vinci. You know, Leonardo, the creative genius who painted the masterpieces, The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa. The man whose brilliant inventions really were centuries before their time. I got the book and I thought, how could I ever think like Leonardo da Vinci? I didn't even finish the book, for that matter. I can't even change the battery in my garage door opener, all right? How could I ever think like Leonardo? Well, I do have one thing in common with Leonardo, and I expect you may as well. Leonardo da Vinci could never say, could never say, it is finished. His pursuit of perfection and his pursuit of closure in his work was never attained. And you know what? 
If you know his story, it crushed his soul. Months before da Vinci died in 1519, he returned to the convent, the monastery, where he had painted the famous The Last Supper. The time he got back, damp and mildew were already destroying his masterpiece. No more than 60 years after he painted The Last Supper, his biography said, his biographer said, The Last Supper had already been ruined as a painting, as a mural. In fact, the figures, the disciples in that painting were unrecognizable just 60 years after he painted this masterpiece. In fact, his greatest masterpieces were unfinished, destroyed or decaying in his own lifetime. His greatest works and inventions were largely undone. Not long before Leonardo died, he penned these small words in his journal. We should not desire the impossible. Maybe you look at your life this evening and you see a lot that is undone. (laughs) Or just frankly, it's unraveling before your eyes. Best intentions gone awry. Promises and expectations unfulfilled. Closure. Completion? Ah, impossible. That may characterize you. It characterizes me. But it does not characterize God. For what God starts, he finishes. What God starts, he finishes. And what he promises, he fulfills. You see, what is impossible with man is not just possible with God. It's a done deal with our God. You see, Christ's passion when he was here on earth was this. It was to do the work which his father had given him to do, the work for which he was sent, and to complete it. Simply put in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 34, we read this one verse, Christ speaking. He says, My food, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. That word accomplish, same word that's used in John 19, verse 30, to tell us die, finished. What was Jesus saying? My work is to accomplish, to fulfill, to complete the work for which my Father has sent me here to earth. You see, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, his last cry, he wasn't just saying his death is imminent. Oh, it's coming. I'm about to die. Oh, he was saying so much more than that. When Jesus was saying it is finished, he was saying it is fulfilled. All that the Father had asked of him on earth had been fulfilled. And because of Christ's faithfulness to the Father, because of his obedience to the Father, our sins are forgiven. Our consciousness is cleansed. We have been reconciled with God. And we have the hope of eternal life with him. Nothing more needs to be done. Nothing can be added to what Christ 
has already done. All that matters in life has been definitively and completely done once and for all. The author of Hebrews put it this way. You don't need to turn there, but just hear the words of Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to pick up at verse 26. But as it is, he, that's Jesus, has appeared, I love these words, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Friends, hear this. No repainting, no touching up, no improvement need be made to this great salvation once and for all. You see, when Christ says, when he says in Hebrews, Christ put away sin by his sacrificial death on the cross, he was doing two things. I keep these in focus for us this evening. What do you mean he put away sin? Well, number one, that which we often speak about, is that Christ paid the full penalty for our sin. You see, Christ was charged with our sin. And Christ was judged for our sin and our rebellion against God. Jesus paid it all. That's number one. But let's not stop there. We often stop there. Something else was accomplished there on the cross as well that's linked to this first. When Jesus put away sin, in doing so, he defeated the power of sin and disarmed Satan at one and the same time. That's why it says in Colossians 2.15, speaking of the cross and of our spiritual enemy Satan and his minions, it says this in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How could that be? Listen up. The only power that Satan has over sinners is sin. Let me explain. Does our government, the state, have the right to imprison you? Well, they only have the right to imprison you if you are convicted of a crime for which the penalty is imprisonment, right? But remove the guilt and remove the penalty and you remove the just basis for our state locking you or locking me up in prison. You see, before God, we are guilty. We are condemned in our sin. But Jesus removed our guilt, and when he did, he removed the basis of Satan's hold and grip upon us. Remove the guilt, and you remove the bondage. That's what occurred at the cross once and for all. Romans 8, 33, 34 says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? His people. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If Christ can be for us and is for us, who can be against us? We do not stand condemned. And Satan's accusations and his claims have no merit. We are free once and for all. It is finished. It is finished. Means that our guilt and our condemnation have been dealt with once and for all. It is finished. There is no second trial. We will not be tried again. There is no double jeopardy because Jesus was tried on our behalf once and for all. But notice the verbiage here. It is finished. doesn't say it was finished or was completed. The verb here is what we call the present tense. You see, in other words, Christ's death at that point in time on Calvary was not just for then and now. It did not just apply to then, but is applicable to us today as well. The completion of Christ's works has ongoing effects, ripples through the centuries to us today, and is applicable to us right here and now. You see, Leonardo finished the Last Supper, but it didn't remain complete. Water seeped in. The colors faded. The paint and the plaster chipped away. You could say that the Last Supper was finished, but you could not say it is finished in the perfect tense. Why? Because the Last Supper was not perfect. And Leonardo da Vinci knew it, and he knew it. Christ's work was finished, and Christ's work is finished. Because he was the perfect once and for all sacrifice that took away the penalty of sin and the power of our sin. And that truth, friends, delivers us to a place of rest. Rest for our souls. I think most of you know here, you know there, there's rest and there's rest. You know what I mean? I mean, there's rest, a little cessation activity, a little cat nap. And then there's deep rest. I'm not just talking about physical rest now. I'm talking about that deep spiritual rest, contentment, and peace. A rest which no silence or solitude can bring. A rest which no sweetest temperpedic king-size mattress could ever produce. A rest that no medication or drug could possibly induce. Oh, a rest which no beach or scenic vacation can buy. I was reading a book this past week by Tim Keller in preparation for our Bible 45 class coming up. And he used this phrase, 
the rest under the rest. Oh, there's rest. Then there's rest. Oh, may we experience the rest under the rest. What he calls the REM of the soul, the rapid eye movement. We're talking deep sleep. The ability to rest and the ability to dream. For my birthday, my children gave me some money to buy one of these jawbone fitness trackers. Got one on right now. Got mine on right now. Some people use it primarily to track their activity. You know, how many steps they do in a certain day or how many calories they burn. I primarily use this tracker to find out how much rest I'm getting, how much sleep on a given evening. You see, not only does this wristband tell me how long it took to fall asleep, it also tells you how many times you woke up in the middle of the night. But it also tells me how well I slept. For every morning, it produces a chart that tells me how much sound sleep I got and how much light sleep I got. So my goal is to sleep eight hours a night. Doesn't happen a whole lot. But it's frustrating. Even when I do get eight hours, you know what? I get the next morning, I look at my little chart, and it says I got two hours of deep sleep. So wonder I feel so tired. Eight hours, and I got two measly hours of deep sleep. Have you ever wondered why you rest, but you never really feel rested? You spend your time racing around, making things right, or trying to at least. You go to bed, or during the day, your mind is racing. Your mind's racing about what I should have done, what I could have done, what I should be doing right now I'm not doing. And it goes on and on. You see, you rest, but you don't really rest. Because you're not getting the rest under the rest. You tracking with me? If this is you tonight, Jesus cry from the cross is also a whisper into your ear. It is finished. Jesus is the rest under the rest. There's nothing more that you can do in regards to your salvation. There's nothing you need to do, you can do to prove yourself. There is closure on what matters most in life. And that is your relationship with God and your standing with him. Oh, I get it. You're here and say, but Corey, there's work. There's a lot of work in my life that's undone. There may be relationships right now which are not yet reconciled. There may be accusations made about you that have not been adequately addressed in your mind in the court of public opinion or even the court of law. The church, but in God's court, in God's court, it is finished. Are you living in the truth, in the good of that truth today? Is that 
truly good to your soul? Do you believe it? In just a few moments, we're going to partake in communion or the Lord's Supper. You see, this is one way the Lord has ordained to bring this truth of finality, of closure, of it is finished to our hearts and to our souls. When we receive communion, you know what we're doing? We're not just remembering what happened 2,000-odd years ago on the cross. We're remembering that. But we're also bringing into focus the benefits thereof of what he did for us. And in his words, it is finished.